Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. I'm here today with Corey DeVos, Editor-in-Chief of Integral Life. Hey Corey. Hey dude. How you doing? Good man, how are you doing? Staying out of the wind? Yeah, seriously, it's crazy out there. It's crazy out there, is right. Hey, before you, uh, before you get going, I just want to let everyone know, this is Jeff Salzman's birthday week. So everyone say <laughs> happy birthday to you. Oh Lord, what? yay. Yeah. That was a, a little bit of Bill Murray there. <laughs> is that what that was? Uh, yeah, yeah. I used to sing it at his, it, that little nightclub act he did, I think, in the Saturday Night Live back in the day. But well, thank you very much. Yeah, it's man. Over. I'm 64. It's solid. And wow, <laughs> can't believe it. And that's all he wants to talk about that. <laughs> yes, right. Um, what I do want to talk about today is, um, you know, one of the things that we do here at the Daily Evolver is we look for where integral thinking is arising in, its, in the culture kind of under its own power. Whether or not the people who are thinking it know that they're thinking integrally or they've ever read a Ken Wilber book or ever heard of any of us. Uh, and there's a lot of that happening. And that would be what we would expect for you know, the cutting edge of human history that is arising, that more people are thinking this way. And so I always appreciate that so many of you listeners point this out to me when you see things. And that's what I'd like to address today is an article that a listener, Margaret, sent me actually yesterday. So it's a pretty current article. Uh, and she wrote, hey, Jeff, this has to be the most thought-provoking article I've read in ages. It certainly rings true for me. And I'd love to hear your perspective on the, these ideas uh, regarding how does it read through an integral lens. So that's what I'm going to do. And um, the article itself is from Alternet, which is uh, sort of a, a hub for leftist thinking on the web. It's a, and it's a big hub. And it has, I think, 6 million visitors on a, on a monthly basis. And one of the features of, of Alternet is it has a really active community of registered commentators, 30,000 of them. So there's always a lot of you know, good discussion. And, uh, but, you know, uh, pretty lefty. So these are four of the headlines from Alternet today. Leading headline. These ancient skeletons totally annihilate a right-wing talking point. Uh, the second one. Uh, this is in honor of Paul Ryan resigning this morning. Uh, it said, 10 things you should know about the lunatic Ayn Rand, who was his hero, of course. Uh, third, the GOP's contempt for education. And fourth, Trump knows he's trapped by the FBI. So this is that website. And yet, in the middle of all of this, there's an article that is titled, Here's Why Some Progressives are tearing each other apart. And it's written by Valerie Tarico, who I, I've never heard of, but uh, I think I should in a way. I mean, I'm glad to hear of her because this article really displays a deep integral sensibility, in, in my opinion. Now, she may, like I said, not be aware of integral theory or adult development or any of that. She makes no mention of it, so she may not be. Uh, but she gets it. Uh, and, and what's extra interesting is she's not using, you know, our lingo or, you know, a lot of the sort of settled 
uh, conditioned thinking of the integral movement. She's sort of coming at it on her own. And what's also interesting about this article is that has ignited a mini firestorm on alternate. It has a huge comment section. Uh, 765 comments, last count. And I checked it out against other, you know, popular uh, posts. The most popular post, by the way, most read, number one most read, retired general humiliates Ivanka Trump with single tweet. And that, that only had 152 comments. And most of them have, you know, maybe 50 to 100. So 765 is a lot. And she has a really interesting thesis. Again, the title is, here's why some progressives are tearing each other apart. And her thesis is that the progressive movement consists of two groups telling two different stories. And again, very aligned with integral thinking, and I'll sort that out as we go along. But she uh, sort of ties it to the idea that human beings are storytellers and that these stories are really important. And, and, and here's what she says. Human beings are storytellers. Stories help us make meaning of events around us and figure out what to care about. She says, political movements, like other groups, organize themselves around stories. Grand narratives scripted to, answers, to answer questions such as these. What is the plot of history? Who matters? Who are the heroes and villains? And who do they protect or hurt? What is our quest? What is our promised land? And how do we get there? And I think that is a very beautiful way of talking about these ultimate questions as we ask ourselves as we build our culture. She also writes, she says, sometimes this might be better phrased in more selfish terms. Who is in our tribe and how do we come out on top? And then I think she has a very sort of integral uh, sort of way of even sorting these two things out, you know, the ideology and the self-interest. She says, idealism and self-interest get mixed together. And because we humans are so centered in our own experience and so good at self-deception, it can be difficult to tell the difference. But within the stories that organize our thinking, we all see ourselves as the good guys, even if history will later disagree. And, you know, I, I, I love that. Uh, you know, I would quibble and argue and I'd say, well, it, stories, it's, it's really structures of consciousness. It's actually what we're able to see and how we're able to process what we see and how, you know, how we do that determines the stories we're even capable of hearing. And, you know, we have different antenna at different structures of consciousness for different stories. And I want to get all developmental and sort of correct her on that and add this bigger dimension. But, you know, honestly, I think hers is probably a better way to take it to the streets. It's yeah, I think it's, it's probably a more skillful, skillful Absolutely, way. skillful means. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and I was talking about, you know, these world spaces and worldviews and, you know, the cognitive line and structures of consciousness and talking about the mind-body, you know, and how we think in terms of our mind and body both. And, and she stopped me. She said, this is where you're losing me. She said, this is way too new age. So, you know, I think, like you said, Corey, it's skillful means. And the truth is, we do tell different stories at the different structures of consciousness. So she's right. 
So she goes on to identify the three big stories. The article at hand here is about the two stories that are sort of on the left, but she also has a different article that I linked back to where she talks about the first story, which is what she calls the ancestral story. And this is very much aligned with integral thinking around traditionalism or the amber altitude of, of development. And she just describes it simply. She says, this is where God is in his heaven and his appointed authorities are in their appointed positions and all is well with the world. Hierarchy provides order and stability, and each of us has his or her place in the proper order of things. Heaven on earth, or as close as we can get it, is when everybody recognizes and lives properly in accordance with these divinely appointed rules, divinely appointed roles and rules. And this is basically the hierarchies that, you know, are all pre-modern, and all pre-modern life is built on some version of these. But then, this is the thesis in this new article. She talks about now a sec second fracture is cracking open. The one between people on the left. And the dynamics are becoming disturbingly similar to the same culture war we're having with the conservatives. It's call-out culture, mobbing, shunning, shaming, censorship, family rifts. What's going on here? And what if anything, should we do about it? So then she goes on to describe the two stories on the left. And the first one she calls the social liberal story. The second one is the structural oppression story. So social liberal story and structural oppression story. And these are, you know, together with ancestor story, this makes up, you know, what's going on in the culture. And she says both of these, the social liberal story and the structural oppression story, can be seen as reactions against the conservative uh, ancestor story, which sanctifies traditional social hierarchies. In their opposition to these traditional hierarchies, the progressive narratives are aligned. But when it comes to strategy and goals, they, that can pull activists in very different directions. So, Here's her description of the social liberal story. And it's basically the classic liberal. And as she puts it, the quest in this story is approximately that of the French Revolution, which sought to undermine the rigid hierarchies of the European class system, creating broader freedoms and equitable opportunity through collective action, liberty, equality, fraternity. This is part of the Enlightenment enterprise. America's founding fathers had staked a similarly bold claim. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable, inalienable rights, among those life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So basically, this is the Enlightenment project, which in integral we would consider to be modern, or the orange structure of consciousness. Um, humanism and science and so forth. She goes on to describe some of that. And she also says that while American, she quotes, in fact, Van Jones, and he had, I think, a really great quote. He says, American, America's founding ideals were beautiful. America's founding reality, not so beautiful. The arc of our history has been a series of fights to bring reality 
into line with these Enlightenment ideals and to continue the Enlightenment's revolutionary project of expanding those who they apply to. And so expanding the circle of those who count fully as a person and as a citizen. This is real kind of an integral feeling, it has a, a, the fragrance of integral here. She says, generations have fought and won battles to expand the circle, bringing in religious minorities, the descendants of African slaves, laborers, women, American Indian, queer folk, and even in very limited ways, members of other species. And she exemplifies this with um, the, the it, it sort of the, the pivot into the next story is Martin Luther King, where he says, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. So that's the social liberal story. And that's the, again, mostly uh, modern, beginning into the postmodern, uh, but that's you know the classic liberal progressive. The next story, and this is the one in opposition to that on the left, and this is further left, and, and this is the structural oppression story, she calls it. And she says, for many young progressives, they have abandoned the dream of the um, social liberal story. Some actively scorn it. For them, a different narrative has moved to front and center. It is a story about oppression, one in which the quest, at least in the near term, is, is not inclusion, but redress, restitution, and perhaps retribution. And the story goes like this. All prosperous capitalist societies, including especially the European democracies and the US, were built by oppressors on the backs of the oppressed. Modern America was built by stealing the land of American Indians, commanding the sweat and blood of black slaves, keeping women in the kitchen, oppressing brown-skinned immigrants, and exploiting Europe's former colonies. Virtually all societal ills derive from this one fact, structural oppression. And redressing this wrong will fix most of the others. And then she, she goes into the philosophical roots of this, um, philo uh, of this view. And she says, if the social liberal and structural oppression stories sound different, that's because they are different. And not just simply in degree or emphasis. And that's really true. That's very important to point out. They have different philosophical roots and are responsive to different sets of social condition. If the conservative ancestral story is anchored in the ancient theologies like those in the Bible and Quran, and the social liberal story is rooted in enlightenment philosophy, the structural oppression story is grounded in a neo-Marxist analysis of society known as critical theory most often applied as critical race theory or critical gender theory. Uh, and critical theory is basically this theory of oppression, this postmodern uh, idea that all the grand narratives of history are bunk and that 
what we have, you know, what history is, is just basically one group oppressing the other. And that is the story of history. And the story of modernity is uh, the world being oppressed and dominated by capitalism and, uh, you know, white privilege. All right. So she goes on to write, she says, where the social liberal narrative undermines traditional hierarchies through repeated cycles of expanded inclusion. So it undermines the traditional hierarchies, the theocrats and so forth, with repeated cycles of expanded inclusion. The structural oppression narrative takes a different approach. Since society is structured as tribes of oppressors and oppressed, all people get classified based on the tribes they belong to. Are they brown or white, female or male, queer or straight, members of a religious minority or Christian, poor or rich, immigrant or citizen? If a person is not oppressed, they are by definition an oppressor because biases like racism and sexism get built into the structure of society and each of us either benefits or suffers from them, whether we know it or not. Now, she says, she, so she wants to critique this structural oppression story. She says, uh, but, 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 actually, she'll get to that in a second. There's one other thing where she talks about that the structural oppression story, here's what she writes, she says, offers a much needed cultural corrective, calling attention to important realities that the social liberal story doesn't address. And that those are the reality that injustice is built into the very structure of social institutions and organizations, including those that are well-intentioned, including on the left. The reality the group is that group identity and intergroup power dynamics profoundly shape human experience. So that's the piece of the truth that structural oppression story has, that uh, you know, those hierarchies of oppression, even though they're outlawed in terms of the exteriors, you can't, you know, overtly discriminate against people, the interiors still have a long way to go. And that is, and, and, and because in the structural oppression story, you know, emerges in the green meme, part of, part of, you know, another big feature of the green meme is a sensitivity and particularly a sensitivity to those who have been left out. And that's a very real thing. That's a new world that we live in when we move into the green meme. So here's the critique of the, the structural oppression story, according to Valerie Tarico here. She says, uh, the first danger is that it's uh, monoperspectival. That's my word, but like the ancestral story, it believes that its way is the right way and the only right way. And she says, I think when the structural oppression story is treated as the true story of human history, it replaces one set of incomplete truths with another and pulls thinking and behavior in directions that are strikingly conservative. And then she does, the, you know, she really sticks her neck out here. She says, a core similarity between the conservative ancestral story and the structural oppression story is that both focus on people as representatives of groups or kinds rather than as individuals or representatives of the human species at large. Conservatives seek to secure power and well-being for those who have traditionally held it 
and anti-oppression activists seek power for those who have not. And so it's a sort of a, a turning over of the dominator hierarchy. And she goes into a lot of examples of how that's true that I'll, you could read the article. But so that's her one uh, critique. The second is that like um, the ancestral story, the social activist, the anti-oppression, the, the structural oppression story uh, attacks rationality, attacks the enlightenment way of knowing, as she puts it. And that's true. You know, from the ancestral, it, the enlightenment is, denies religion, you know. And from a uh, structural oppression, it, uh, it uses reason for oppression. So both, she writes, both mistrust the enlightenment way of knowing, which relies heavily on reason and empiricism, including the process of data aggregation and hypothesis testing that we call science. Neither religious faith nor subjective experience is accountable. And I want to pause there. Neither religious faith, if that's the ancestral story, or subject, subjective experience of the uh, anti-oppression story, neither of those is accountable. Both are untouchable from the standpoint of the scientific, scientific method, which, because humans are so prone to con confirmatory thinking, has been called, quote, what we know about not, how not to fool ourselves. That's the description of science, what we know about how not to fool ourselves. In the absence of a shared agreement about epistemology, or how we decide what is even real, we have no means of converging on a shared set of facts. So that's a very good teasing apart, I think, of really the three structures of consciousness that are engaged in the culture war right now. Uh, and, and I think a really nice way of uh, delineating the, 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 the battleground that is forming on the left. There's also one forming on the right. And we want to notice that this, especially even just in the last couple of days with this Mueller, uh, 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 Bustin, Trump's lawyer, and then uh, Paul Ryan resigning today, th there's, a, there's a schism happening on the right too between the sort of Trump uh, right, which is the far right, and even into the red territory, and the more you know, keep the trains running on time, traditional Republicans. But that's another story. This is, this is what she's talking about is what's happening on the left. And so she tries to do an integration here at the end, and I think it's pretty good. She says, the reality is that each of these two progressive narratives contains important truths and neglects others. I mean, that could be out of a Ken Wilber book. She also says, as do many conservative stories contain important truths and neglects others, if we take time to really listen. Now that's getting on to heresy on Alternet, but God bless her. So she writes, our shared humanity and unique individualism are precious, and we must never forget that they have been denied or suppressed for most, most of human history along tribal boundaries. The deep wounds suffered by only some, some groups or disproportionately among some groups at the hands of others needs to be recognized and redressed if they are to heal. This is not just old history. So she's holding the, the precious gifts of both of those, that there's a 
you know, shared humanity, individuals are precious. Uh, and then there's also groups that have been, you know, wounded and that that's not just history, that, that those wounds still live and reverberate karmically through, you know, these cultures. So she says, we can move forward together only by understanding the limitations of the stories we tell ourselves and by acknowledging the basic humanity and usual, usually good intentions of those who differ. This is you know, very integral here. Reality is more complicated than any story, and humanity's lazy devotion to partial truths, as if they were whole truths, even more than willful falsehood, puts, it, puts us at risk of decline, conflict, and even collapse. And this is the thing that true believers lose, lose sight of, and we can do better. And um, so that's the article. It's um, by, again, Valerie Tarico. how some progressives, what is it, are fighting, are tearing each other apart. And uh, I encourage you to go read it. We'll, we'll link to it in the, right up here. Um, I also want to just uh, uh, share a little bit from the comments section because, again, this thing really ignited. And there are two flavors, well, actually three flavors of comments. One was appreciative. Not many, actually, <laughs> but some. Some people said, I really like that. It's made me think and so forth. But the, a lot of it was very critical. Most of it was very critical. And the, and the critiques uh, really came in two clusters. One was around economics. And here's from Citizen Y. In this article, there's no mention of the problem of who owns what, how ownership confers power. From Ginny in Italy. Excuse me, but why isn't she dissecting the oppressors? The only thing that's tearing everyone apart in this country is money and ownership in the hands of the few who are busy destroying the rights and freedoms of the many. From Wallace, people in this country are puppets to what they've been taught and told. Neither party gives a fuck about anybody but rich people. Wake up. And then from Jamie, oppression story my arse. The socialism-leading anti-war left should depose the central Democrat and Republican oligarchy-serving, warmongering cabal in Washington for decency with anti-war and anti-empire libertarians, socialists, independents, and conservatives. So kind of an integral comment in his own way there. Um, and he ends it by saying, stay inured to your offensive awful, O-F-F-A-L, which is probably worth contemplating, but geez. And so, it, so that's the economic piece. And I have to think that, I, I think there's a, um, that's a legitimate critique of this article. She really just doesn't get into the, you know, the, the you know, oligarchy in a way. And, and I did a talk with Tom Curran last week that I'm going to publish here this week uh, on um, a nonprofit that he started called Change the Rules, which is very different from this article. It's a very practical thing about how to change the rules of politics in doable ways. Uh, and he makes the point that although, you know, most people bemoan polarization and those of us who are subject to it feel like, you know, it, the, the system isn't working at all, that actually for the players, for the politicians and all of the people at the think tanks and all of the lobbyists and all of the people who, you know, give money to the politicians, 
uh, it's actually working great. And so th that's a really legitimate uh, argument. And uh, as I said, this one uh, I, I did with Tom Curran gets into that in a you know, real granular way. So anyway, that's the economic piece, I think a legitimate criticism. The other piece is, you know, really the bullseye of what she's talking about. And, uh, and that's the cultural purse, uh, the cultural piece. And from Jalen, he writes, um, and this is, a, you know, four paragraphs, but, you know, it hits me right between the eyes. Uh, uh, <clears throat> I take it quite personally, actually, but he writes, tripe, pure, puritanical call-out culture. The person with whom you spent hours at a political meeting will be the person tis tisking about whether you're a vegan and then spreading gossip about your parenting skills. Don't project that shit onto the rest of us leftists. I hate Seattleites and Portlanders. Sorry, I can't stand all that lifestyle niche conformist shit. They turn liberalism into Peyton Place. And it's not just the virtue signaling conservatives complain about. It's a full-on virtue display. Are you vegan, non-GMO, sustainable? Are you checking your privilege? Are you waving your queer-friendly anti-racism flag? It's narcissism, and it makes me sick. The Achilles Hill heel was always that white, educated people running the progressive era would not see working class or non-white people and cultures as having dignity unto themselves. And this is a critique of, you know, a sort of liberals here. Basically, in order to progress into true freedom and human potential, everyone had, to, uh, had by fiat to become white and middle class. That is still the failing of progressives like yourself, no matter how you may dress it up in totalizing narratives. And I specifically resent that. Uh, and then he says... Centrist progressives would prefer, would, would prefer, that's me, centrist progressives, would prefer that all of us noisy, messy, unseemly brown people shut the fuck up and let you run everything. Too bad. You don't get it. I don't want to be white. I'll work with white leftists or any other color, but I don't really want to hang out with pitched up perfectionists, white chicks who gossip about my dietary habits. I have my own culture. I don't want yours. So, damn. Um, you know, so it kind of makes me want to say, if I can't, you know, what are we doing here? So, uh, but that is, a, you know, a very, you know, powerful statement from that, you know, social oppression wing of the party. And, you know, part of my job and I think a lot of our job here, you know, especially for the, you know, the more, you know, traditional progressives, is that deep, these are deeply held beliefs that have legitimacy. And um, they are held by our brothers and sisters for reasons that make sense to them and for reasons that are indeed good, true, and beautiful by their lights. And, um, and that's, you know, sort of, you know, takes the solidity out of our ideologies. And, and I always love the, the Buddhist teachings about that there's really no ground ultimately to rest on. 
and that this is a moving system of impermanence and we want to expand to include as much of it as we can. So I love that article. I encourage you to read it. And, uh, you know, it's as integral as anything I've seen in a while. What do you think in there, Mr. Corey? Yeah, I got a few thoughts. Well, first off, I, I, I also thought it was a fantastic article. Um, you know, like you, I always appreciate it when I find articles like this that really resonate with um, integral thought in a lot of ways, you know, w without necessarily being pushed through an integral lens. You know, I, I almost even appreciate it more when someone sort of backs into a lot of these types of insights without using Ken's work as a map in order to get there. Because it's, you know, if anything, it's, it's for me, it's, it's sort of a, a nice reminder that this territory that we're talking about every day is real. And we're not just sort of, you know, reverse engineering it or hallucinating it from this beautiful map that we have. This is, this is a real territory that people are um, growing into in different ways with different capacities, um, using very different language to describe that territory, but people are growing into it every day, which, you know, I think we would say right on schedule. Um, yeah. You know, life conditions are rearranging themselves in such a way that demand integral responses and people are therefore growing into that space. And that's, that's really cool to see. Right. And what I enjoyed with this article too is, you know, as an integralist, I always love a good article that can sort of give us, you know, some, some really useful generalizing orientations um, to help sort of situate what's going on. What are the major trends that are, that are going on, uh, you know, within a particular group or party or politic or whatever. And I thought she did a pretty good job. Um, I think, you know, uh, she had, uh, she had a limited space of word count. So obviously she can't throw the kitchen sink in there, but I think there are a few nuances that we would probably like to add. Like you, I thought that she, you know, is largely in a sense describing the split in the liberal party in the left that Ken talks about, which is the split between orange and green. Um, I don't think it's, it's a clear, clean sort of distinction because I think that there are elements of both of these sort of liberal ideologies that exist in orange and green, but I can also see how, you know, those different stages kind of gravitate in different ways. And I, I think it's one of the, I don't know if it's a problem, but it, one of the things we want to notice is that we have a two party system that's working with three stages of development. Yeah, that's right. So it's basically splitting modernity, traditionalism and early modernity, or, you know, sort of the libertarian modernity, the business people modernity, they tend to go Republican. The academic, the scientific, uh, the, the entertainment, the, that, that side of modernity tends to go with the liberals. Right. And so we have, that's how a two-party system works with these yeah, it's interesting. We actually do have sort of a parliamentary of, of representation in this country, but it's all smushed into this two-party system, which requires, you know, really strange bedfellows and yeah. weird alliances. And, you know, a lot, of, a lot of these sort of conflicts get buried for the sake of sort of, you know. Yeah. They uh, get buried until they don't. Yeah, and, that's and, right. And that's right. Until they can't be. Now. Yep. Yep, exactly. Right on schedule because, you know, as, as culture continues to evolve, part of that engine of evolution is differentiation. Yeah. You know, so yeah. the left is differentiating, yep. the right is differentiating. And then there's new iterations that are possible once this new territory is clearly staked out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Jeff. And I, and I think that, you know, when it comes to this article in particular, 
you know, I, I, I actually think we, we lose something if we only focus on the orange-green split. Because like I say, I think that this actually represents a polarity that exists at both of those stages. And the polarity that I see is it's really, you know, I think there's sort of a clash, there's a deeper clash here, which is actually a clash between karma and creativity, right? So the, the social liberals are often pushing for, to, to help engineer novel emergence. They want bigger, better, more inclusive, more universal systems that haven't existed historically, but they know are within our potential. They know they're within reach. They know that we can sort of reach up and pluck these down if we can just muster sort of the political will and you know the, 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 the clean conscience that we need in order to even see those possibilities in the first place. And they often do so using you know, neg the language of negative rights in order to sort of establish that, that more egalitarian you know, utopia that they're looking to achieve. Whereas you know, I think that the structural oppressionists out there are really, you know, they're, they're not looking at novelty, they're not looking at creativity as much as they're, they're looking at redressing our karma, our, our inherited karma, um, you know, in order to, to, you know, we know that we have systemic issues, systemic indigestion, if you will, that, that, is, that needs to be routed out and we need to sort of, you know, cast some daylight onto these oppressive systems that we've inherited, you know, largely by no fault of ours, right? But we haven't really uh, done a good, in, in, in their view, we haven't done a good enough job of pushing that through a more 21st century filter to get rid of those kind of, you know, oppressive right. um, qualities that are still in there. So it's really, you know, I think that the, the left is served by having this dynamic between karma and creativity, sort of looking to, into the future and also redressing the past. I think that's, that's a good thing. And I think that that dynamic is, exists for both orange and green. And the other thing I think is a little bit, I think can be a little bit dangerous about only going with the orange versus green narrative is that I think that, these, that the, the, the stories as she describes them, these, these sort of um, the, the narratives, the views of each of these uh, factions of the liberal party are, are in a lot of ways sustained by orange thinkers and green thinkers. But, you know, when you read through those comments, when I read through any comments section for any of these, you know, sort of big thought articles, <laughs> it's always a, a fairly painful reminder that there's, there's the ideologies, there's the, these narratives, and then there's all the individuals that are enacting these narratives in very different ways. And it's a reminder whenever I look at comments section that many, if not most of the people who use this kind of language from either of these factions um, aren't necessarily themselves capable of thinking orange or thinking green. Right. A lot of them are actually still very amber in terms of their self-development, but they're, they've inherited all of these signifiers and idioms from these cultural artifacts, you know, um, yeah. over decades, which sort of reformats their language and can make them sound very liberal sounding. But what they're actually doing is using liberal idioms, liberal, you know, semiotics in order to reinforce their, you know, amber group think and um, their new, their new oppressor hierarchy. That's right. Basically. Yeah. And Ken talks about, you know, how, Particularly green is is a sitting duck for red, yeah. Because you know it doesn't really have 
uh, absolute truth and wants to bring in everybody and it wants to particularly bring in the people who have been oppressed. And, um, you know, sometimes they get taken over. That's right. By the, the red impulses uh, uh, that, uh, you know, are out there. And, and also the, the sort of amber impulses that have a, you know, totalitarian view of how things should be and, mm -hmm. you know, still see the world as amber does, or particularly red does, as just basically power dynamics, nothing That's right. more. That's right. Yeah, and I, re I really appreciate how she was actively trying to recognize and integrate the wisdom of both of these factions. Because they do yes. have wisdom. And when left to their own devices, they tend to sort of make the problem even worse, right? Notice is a lot of the people who are big proponents of conspiracy theories, you know, deep state stuff, Alex Jones type stuff. A lot of these people also simultaneously post a lot of memes that criticize the, the sort of uh, the structural oppression view. Right, mm -hmm. so they, they, they make fun of a lot of these views. But what's sort of ironic to me is that con the conspiracy theorists themselves are subscribing to an even more sinister theory of oppression, right? That there's literally some group of usually white old men who have their thumbs on reality and are limiting you know, what these people can do with their, these individuals can do with their lives because of this massive top-down sort of Orwellian um, oppression that is, you know, being pushed on their heads. So I just, I, I find that a little bit ironic that there's, there's a rejection of one sort of narrative of oppression and a, you know, pretty <clears throat> big embrace of, and even deeper, and I would say not as substantial, um, or at least not as substantiated form. Yep. Well, I think one of the things that we could do at Integral is see just all of that. Yeah, I agree. And, 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 and the expansion that takes place, and you know, we want to be careful about this and not glib about this, but at some point we identify with humanity. That's right. And if we look at the history of humanity, it's a fucking catastrophe, yep. you know, for, you know, an evolving catastrophe. And we have entered a new phase where there is a, a remarkable, uh, emergence of peace, prosperity, decency, equality, all of the stuff that we value so much. And while we want to continue to move the ball there because we're not done, uh, we also want to appreciate that, oh, how far we've come. Yeah. So Absolutely. And I think this woman really, you know, nails that. And yeah, I think she did a great job. And, and, you know, my hope for sort of where this goes from here especially in the social media sort of post-truth age that we're in, is my concern is often with the Liberal Party that their concerns are, are you know, their very justified concerns are usually around changing the deep structures of our society. Either they want to push the deep structures in a certain direction or they want to prevent them from being pushed in another direction. And the, the concern that I often have for the, you know, the left of today is that they're trying to get at these deep structures largely through surface structures. So largely through um, you know, things like political correctness and uh, identity politics and intersectionalism and you know, all these things that are really only addressing these surface level pressures, which are themselves symptomatic of a deeper you know, sort of issue um, that's, that's, that's you know, real and is really taking place. But, I think we as a culture are losing our capacity to even really see 
both recognize those deep structural challenges and also find a way to get at them, you know, sort of the, the civic processes that we need in order to, to begin moving that lever. And well, that's I have a theory. I, I see the left return to. Yeah, well, I have a theory that the, one of the ways that we're getting at them is through these comment sections. Mm. I mean, these people are fighting and they're, you know, they're back and forth and, you know, there's, you know, little onion skins of movement when yeah. that happens. And yeah. God bless them for getting yeah. in the arena. Well, so. and I th yeah, and I think there is an, an increasing pressure for us to step beyond our view and into genuine enactment. And it's an enactment based, you know, that there's different types of enactments for different types of views, and that's fine. Our hope is that everyone is enacting their own view in as healthy and as robust of a way as possible. Yep. As healthy as possible, just where they are. Yep. Put your hands just on the wheel. Just where we are. Yep. Yeah. Put your hands on the wheel. All right. No, Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. Right on, man. I'm, I think I'm being attacked by the uh, uh, brigade of lawnmowers here. I hear them coming. <laughs> so uh, we'll sign off for now. But again, the article is on Alternet, of all places. Here is, here's why some progressives are tearing each other apart by Valerie Tirico, and uh, I recommend it. And thanks, Margaret, for sending it. Thanks, Corey, for joining me. Thanks, everybody else, too. And we'll see you next time on The Daily Ballroom.